Well, good morning, church family. I am Barrett Bowden, lead pastor here at Island Community Church, and I just want to welcome you this morning. Uh, wherever you're joining from, we are truly thankful that you have chosen to worship with us. Uh, if you're new to our church or newer to our church, I just want to encourage you to know that while times are different, uh, we truly are a big family of people who love Jesus here in this downtown and inner city of the Memphis area, and uh, we are relational people. And uh, right now, even there's ways that you can connect with us relationally. We've got life groups going on. Uh, they're both digital, some are in person. All of them are safe and limited in size to protect all of us. But we just want you to know this morning how much we love you, appreciate you, and how much we would really truly desire to connect with you in this season of your life in any way that we can. And you see some of the information that's been there on the screen and ways to do that. I want to pray for us as we continue worship this morning with our time in God's word. Father, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you, Lord, for your sufficient grace. Thank you, Lord, for the finished work of our Savior, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you provide right now for all who believe. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would continue to move in our hearts as we seek you, Lord, in your word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are actively speaking. And Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts today as we listen to you. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church family, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to be continuing with our series, Jesus is Better, and our study of the book of Hebrews. So if you've got your Bible, and I hope you, you do, that you'll get it open to the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to be in chapter 6, verse 13, all the way through chapter 7, verse 28. And our topic for the day is that Jesus is better because he is better forever. That's our theme for the day, better forever. And I hope that if you've got some way to take notes this morning that you will do that, uh, whether it's a notepad or your phone or something, that you'll take this time to be attentive to God's word. And uh, like I said, today's message title, if you're writing it down, is better forever. Well, I want to just start by having a little bit of conversation about some realities in our life. And the first thing I want to say is this. Our ability to fully trust another is directly related to our perception of another's dependability. Agree? I think so. What I'm saying here is that it's just a, for all of us in life, it's just something that we know. Trust is hard. And the reality is many of us are constantly wondering who it is, what it is that we can trust. Most of us. And the reality is, as we think about relationships in our life, and we begin to think about, I mean, think right now about specific people in your circle, uh, people that you encounter, relationships that you have. You, you, we are constantly evaluating uh, how much to extend real trust to these people. Um, and there's levels of trust that we can extend. It's a reality for all of us. But we're constantly evaluating how much trust we can extend to these people in our life based on how dependable we evaluate these people to be. Yeah? Yeah. Absolutely true. So we can also say this. Therefore, we sometimes, some of us maybe oftentimes, struggle to be fully honest, trusting confident and free in our relationships. And again, what I'm trying to say is this honesty, this trust, this confidence, this freedom comes 
based on whether or not we really feel that we can trust others with ourselves, trust others with the commitments that they're making to us, just trust others in general. And our relationships are often determined by how much trust we feel, we believe that we are able to extend. Now, if I know this to be true in our human relationships, right? All of us probably right now know this to be true. There's people we trust more, there's people we trust less, and often that's related to our perception of another's dependability. Then let me tell you this, how much more is it true that our trust in Jesus is related to how much we believe that we can really depend on him? If we are going to fully trust Jesus, we need to know if he is dependable. I mean, if, if Jesus is inviting us, asking us, imploring us, telling us how needed it is for us to, to yield our whole heart, our whole hope to him, to put all of our confidence in him, then we better know, we better know that he is dependable. If we get it in our earthly relationships, we've got to understand how important this is to understand in our relationship with Jesus, our Savior. So obvious questions arise. Can we be sure of Jesus? Can we trust his word and can we trust his work? Is he really a dependable person? Is he really a dependable priest? The big question is, how is it that we can know? Well, this morning, I hope that you're on the edge of your seat, resonating with some of these things that I'm sharing, some of these questions that I'm asking, because that is exactly the focus of the passage that we're going to be in today in this conversation about how Jesus is better forever. Just a little bit of background about the book of Hebrews. I know many of us have been trailing with us, tracking with us throughout this series. And uh, in case you haven't, and even if, the, if you have, Hebrews is all about the person of Jesus. And really in the book of Hebrews, what we find is 13 different times in the book, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as being better. In other words, compared and contrasted with any other thing, Jesus is the best. He's the one our hearts are made for. There's nothing lacking in him. 14 times he's described as perfect, and he is also unchanging. He is eternal, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, one of the things that sometimes we get confused about in relationship with Jesus is we think about him just taking away the bad things in our life, but he doesn't just take away bad things. He doesn't just forgive us of wrong, but he also offers to us all that is good, all that is wonderful, all that is beautiful, all that is, that is true joy, true life, uh, true hope. He, he is offering to us himself, and he truly is the best. And the writer of Hebrews has been desiring, as he's written this book, to show us just how wonderful Jesus really is. And today is no different. I've been teaching over the last few weeks just to understand the structure of the book of Hebrews. You can understand it in three main sections. In the first section, we learn how Jesus in his personhood is better. Chapter 1 through middle of chapter 4. In the second section, we learn how Jesus is a better priest. He as he mediates between a holy God and us who are sinful, he is better in his priesthood in every way. And in the last section of the book, which is chapter middle of 10 all the way through the end, is about how this life that he calls us to live is a better life. Well, today, the passage that we're going to be in is still right here in this middle section. 
this section describing how Jesus is a better priest. And today, like I said, we're going to be looking at how he is better forever. And to go back to those questions at the beginning, what we know is we've got to find out how is it that we can be sure that Jesus is dependable? How is it that we can really know that we can trust his word and trust his work? And that is exactly what today's passage is all about. So if you've got something to write with, I would encourage you to write our core truth down for the day. It comes straight from the passage that we're going to be studying in Hebrews 6 and 7. But I want to go ahead and give it to you so that you have an opportunity to write it down. It's what summarizes this passage and the core truth that is communicated from God to us in the passage today. I'll read it out loud. God has guaranteed Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. Jesus alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. I'll read it again. You can read it with me at home. Kids, moms, dads, husbands, wives, even if you're by yourself, you can still read it out loud this morning. All of us together across the community reading at the same time is fine. God has guaranteed Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. Jesus alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. Well, that's our core truth for the day, and I hope you've had opportunity to write it down. We'll go through it piece by piece just in case you haven't, but basically the passage outline that you heard read, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity always to have different folks from our church reading us scriptures as we meet together, but the passage that we read can really be broken down into this basic message structure. Number one, the writer of Hebrews helps us to know in verse 13 through 20 of chapter 6 that God's promise is sure. In section 2, which is the start of chapter 7, verses 1 through 28, really the whole of chapter 7, section 2 here, he helps us to know that not only is God's promise sure, but Jesus' priesthood is sure. And then in the third section today, what we're going to be talking about is what implications this has for our lives. And he mentions this at the end of chapter 6, but also the end of chapter 7. And the implications we'll talk about here in this third section, how Jesus' provisions for us are sure. So we've got God's promises are sure. Jesus' priesthood is sure. And ultimately, his provisions are sure. In other words, the writer in the, the passage of today is basically coming at us and he's saying to us, I, I know that your trust uh, is, is kind of tied to whether or not you can really be sure of Jesus, his word and his work, whether you can depend on him. But I want you to know that, that God's promise is sure. Jesus' work as a priest is sure. And thereby, his promises and his provisions to you are sure. He wants you to know that Jesus is dependable. Jesus is dependable. And so the whole structure of this section in this particular passage of Hebrews is all about helping you to know how dependable our Savior, Jesus Christ, really is. So if we go back, we're going to start here in this first section how 
God's promise is sure, okay? If we go back to our core truth, it really relates to the beginning of our core truth today, and that is that God has guaranteed, all right? What we're saying is God has made a promise, and his promise is sure, so God has guaranteed. Um, throughout this passage in the, in the book of Hebrews, um, we, we see basically, again, a discussion about the priesthood of Jesus and how God has appointed Jesus to be a priest. And really what we're talking about here is the fulfillment of the promise in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, that God has sworn, and he will not change his mind, uh, that, that you, and ultimately we know the writer here is connecting the you to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus will live forever as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here what we're talking about is can we really be sure that this is true, that Jesus is the one who has, the one who can mediate between us and, and God. And can he do this forever, all right? So that's the, the heart of, of this whole message, but specifically the heart of this first section. Now what I wanna walk through together here, if you've got your Bibles and you go back to the passage in Hebrews chapter six, is in this first section, I, I want you to see that God gives us three guarantees. So again, I hope you're taking notes this morning, but what I want to talk about first is how, how is it that we can know God's promise is sure, all right? He gives us three guarantees, and they're layered in here in this passage. Number one, he gives us his promise, all right? He gives us his promise. If you look at the text there in Hebrews chapter 6, and you look back at verse 13 to 15, here's what we read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you, and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the first thing that the writer wants you to know is that God has given you his word, right? He has made a promise. And this should give you great, great confidence because God's promise means something. Now, what we know is that from this passage here in Hebrews 6, he's actually quoting a passage from Genesis chapter 22. Actually, Genesis 22, 16 to 18. And what we know is that in Genesis 22, God actually makes to Abraham a promise. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's going, hey, do y'all, you remember the promise that God made Abraham? God is a God who makes promises. But I want you to remember something else. Not only did he just make a promise, he, tons of people, y'all know this. I mean, how many of us have had people make us promises before? Right? Everybody show hands? Okay. How many of us, though, know that it's not enough just to make a promise? How many, leave your hand raised if you've had someone break a promise to you before? Yes, right? Almost all of us know that a promise enough is not perhaps a good enough guarantee, at least as we think about other uh, imperfect relationships or people that we've, we've seen break promises. But what the writer's saying is not only did God make a promise to Abraham, 
but he fulfilled his promise. Abraham obtained the promise as he trusted God. In other words, he's trying to say to us that God is a promise keeper. Think about just this promise in Genesis chapter 22. Um, He said he's going to multiply his offspring. I mean, he just had one child. And yet he said, I'm going to multiply your offspring so that you can't even number them like stars in the sky. Well, what we know is that absolutely was true. I mean, uh, it is unbelievable what happened even through the son that he's talking about here, Isaac. The millions of Jews that live in Israel today, 14 million, I think, in the last count that we had uh, just from the last year, two years ago, uh, around the world today. I mean, God has kept his promise that the descendants of Abraham uh, are, are numerous, more than could even be counted, uh, like stars in the sky. And not only that, but he made a promise here that these descendants would possess the gate of his enemies. He made a promise that they would inherit a certain land. And what we know is after they were rescued from Egypt after 40 years, in fact, they were able to conquer and inherit the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And even, you know, in recent years, there's been uh, people who uh, come in and overtaken the land, but, you know, the Jewish people are back there since 1948. God is a God who throughout the Old Testament history, New Testament history, and even to this day has been shown to, to keep his promise. And of course, we also see here that he promised Abraham that through his offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And a long story short is we know that from the line of Abraham came Judah and from the line of Judah ultimately came Jesus and through Jesus blessing has come to indeed the whole world. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is that God is a God who makes promises but not just that our God is a God who keeps promises. He's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. He is faithful to all of his promises and that's we see this echoed all throughout the Bible. For instance in Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 what we read is God is not a man. He's not like other people who have have made you promises and gone back on them. He's not a man that he should lie. I, I know that trust is hard because we have been let down again and again and again by the broken word, the broken promises of other people. But God is not like other people. God doesn't lie. He says, or son of man, that he should change his mind. He doesn't make a promise and then later go, oh, I wish I had never made that promise and then fail to keep it. He's not like other people that have hurt you, broken you, shown you that maybe it's hard to depend on them. He's not like that. He has said, and will he not do it? What he has promised, will he not do it? Or what he has spoken, will he not fulfill it? And of course, the answer is, of course. God is not a liar. God gives his word and he keeps his word. He makes promises and he keeps promises. And so there is a strong assurance, number one, that we have been given his promise. That's the first guarantee. And his promise will always come to pass. Well, the second guarantee we see in the passage is this. Not only does he give us his promise, but he gives us his oath. The second thing I want you to write down under the three guarantees that God gives us, how can we know How can we know that Jesus is dependable? He's given us promise, number one. And secondly, he's given us his oath. If you go back to the passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 and 17, here's what we see. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now why? Here it is. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. In other words, it could have been enough for God to just give his promise because God is not a liar and he will never break his promise. That could have been enough. But just in case you are wondering, is his word really good? Here's what he did. He added to his word an oath. Now this oath was an oath to himself. Now what the writer says is, think about it. Think about it. In, in everyday, you know, here in Memphis, you go to the Memphis uh, City Hall, you go to the Shelby County Courthouse, and what you'll see is as people get up to testify, if you've ever seen a courtroom show or even been in a courtroom, typically they'll, they'll raise their right hand, and I'll, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. And then they add a little phrase, typically, uh, so help me God. In other words, uh, it's not enough that we are just you take my word for it, I've got to attach myself to before God, I'm telling you, I'm committing to you uh, with him as my witness that I'm not lying. Some courtrooms, they'll have you uh, even put your hand on the Bible in order to, to have your hand there and then you raise your hand here and they're doing that by, by saying there's a higher authority to which I'm swearing that what I'm telling you today is the absolute truth. We know this. It's, it's common practice for people to swear by something greater than themselves. So, what does, what does God do when he wants to confirm to us that his promise is actually true? He makes an oath. He doesn't have to because his word is enough, but he does that so that we can be absolutely convinced. And what is his oath to? Well, he doesn't, all he can do, there's no greater authority than what? Himself. So what happens is, as God makes an oath, he swears to his own character because there's no, there's no greater thing that he can, can swear by. And he says, according to my own character, and God is a holy God, his character is perfect. But he's saying, I will swear by my own character that my word will come to pass, that this promise of salvation in Jesus Christ, this promise of Jesus being appointed as your mediator forever is, is true. I will guarantee it not only with the promise, but by an oath. In other words, it would take God himself changing for his promise to change. He swears it by his character. And what we know is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He will not change. Therefore, what a strong encouragement we have. Number one, we have his promise. Number two, we have his oath. And then number three, here's what we have. We have his son. We have his son. Not only do we have his promise, not only do we have his oath, but God has given us his own son. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6. What we read is, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this language about the anchor and this hope and this one who's a forerunner, but 
if you underline all those phrases, what do they do? They all point to who? They all point to Jesus. In other words, if you're looking for a guarantee, you've got his, you've got his word, you've got his character. He's sworn his word by his character. He's made an oath. But thirdly, look at this. You have his son. You have his own son. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, my word, some of us know, lay away at, at Walmart, right? And you, you, you want to come back and get something. You want them to know you put a little money, money down as a way to, to guarantee you're going to come back and get it, right? We put deposits down for apartments, things like that. Uh, it's, it's a way, a little guarantee that I'm going to fulfill my promise and make good on this contract. Well, I cannot even imagine a situation where I'd be in such a place that I'd be so wanting you to know that my promise is true, that what I've said is going to come true, that I would give you my own daughter or daughters as a guarantee that I will come back and fulfill the thing I promised. And yet this is what God has done. God has not just made a promise. He's not just made an oath, but he's given us his own son as a guarantee. And ultimately, his promise and oath lead us to Jesus. He is our living hope. He's gone into the very place of the presence of God to mediate on our behalf. So friends, we can be sure of God's promise. And that's basically what this first section is all about. God's promise is sure. He's given us these guarantees. His promise, his oath, and his son. You can depend on God. You can depend on his word, and you can depend on his work in Jesus Christ. He is dependable. Look at his word, look at his oath, and look at his son. You can trust him. You can trust him. Well, the writer moves on to the second section, and he wants us to know not only is God's promise sure, but secondly, his priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus specifically. The, this appointment into the priesthood, an eternal priesthood, this appointment is, is sure. His priesthood is sure. And we see that by looking at verse 1 through 28 of, of chapter 7. What I want to do is point your attention back to the core truth because I talk about this in the core truth. Okay, God has guaranteed, that's the first section here, but the second part of the core truth that we wrote down together says what? Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. What the writer wants you to know is, yes, God's guarantee, but what is, what, what, it, what is the end result of his guarantee? He wants you to know that Jesus can forever. He will forever and ever. He will live forever as your perfect mediator before God. He will always eternally be a perfect advocate and mediator for you before God if you trust him. Now, you got to ask the question, well, how can we know that to be sure? And that's what chapter 7 is really all about. If you go to verse 1 of chapter 7 and you look at your Bible, right, we get introduced to this guy. It says, for this Melchizedek. Now, we've talked about Melchizedek briefly just a few weeks ago, but in this passage, he's going to really unpack the fullness of the, the, the implications of this guy, Melchizedek. His name is hard enough to pronounce. It's even harder, perhaps, to try to understand who is this guy and what does this mean for the priesthood of Jesus? And that's exactly what's happening in chapter 7. 
Well, I've worked hard to try my best to help connect some dots and to make it super simple for you. I know this passage can be complex. He warned us about it even in an earlier part of chapter six. I'm about to talk to you about something complex and I want you to listen up. But it is important. And I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. We have this one little blip of the mentioning of Melchizedek. So what I wanna do real quick is go to that passage in Genesis 14 and just read what it says. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So what we see in this passage is that Abram is coming back from having fought some, some battles. And he encounters this guy who we know is referred to here as king of Salem. And he's also a priest of God most high. And he encounters this guy. His name is Melchizedek. And in this encounter, what we see is that Melchizedek blesses Abram, and Abram turns around and gives to Melchizedek. There's this interesting interaction that's a spiritual interaction. Melchizedek is functioning as some kind of mediator between Abram and God. And both of them recognize this. Now, what's happening in Hebrews 7 is, if you go back to verse 1, he begins to mention this Melchizedek. And over and over and over, he begins to talk about how Jesus, when he comes, like we read about in Psalm 110.4, he comes, God has appointed him to be a priest eternally, but the order of his priesthood is quite strange. He doesn't come in the line of the Levites, the line of Aaron, but rather he comes in this other line, this line of Melchizedek. So he comes in the order of Melchizedek. And you've got to ask the question, well, why is this significant? And here's what I want to do to make it super simple for you this morning, because I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. I want to put up a chart, and I'm going to just walk through this together. So hopefully you can see this on your screens and hopefully you have an opportunity to write down, basically just copy this chart, because I think it'll help you a lot to make sense of what's going on in chapter seven. The basic thing that you need to understand is that Melchizedek is like a shadow. But ultimately what we know about shadows is the shadow is not the real person. You might see my shadow before you see me, but ultimately when you spot my shadow, it's meant to, to indicate that I'm coming. But nobody would go and try to interact with my shadow like it's actually me, right? The shadow is a reflection of a substance. My person is the substance. So in some way, when we look at Melchizedek, he's a real person, okay? But what we see is over and over in the Old Testament, there are, there are types, there are shadows uh, that are presented to us that ultimately are, are meant to lead us to Jesus, they're meant to help us to know something about one who is coming. And the fulfillment of that is, is Jesus himself. 
So what we see here is that Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews is helping us understand, Melchizedek is a type of shadow of the priest that ultimately Jesus will forever be. And there's some unique things about Melchizedek that help us to understand why he's such a good shadow and ultimately how Jesus fulfills that in substance. Number one, in verse 4 through 10 of chapter 7, and you can look at it later, but you heard it read earlier, there's all this discussion about the uniqueness of how Abraham gave to Melchizedek of he gave him a tithe. And then how Melchizedek turned around and, and blessed Abraham. Well, what this means is that Abraham is recognizing in Melchizedek that Melchizedek is greater than he. Um, he is seeing that he owes Melchizedek tithe. That is a, a priestly uh, thing that you would bring to the priest the tithe for the offering to God. And then, of course, with the blessing, you have one who is greater blessing one who is lesser. And, and that shows the superiority of Melchizedek. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Abram we know, was the father of all of the nation of Israel. So out of Abraham's loins, at that very moment that he is giving that tithe to Melchizedek, what we know is he is representing those who would come after him. In other words, Aaron and the whole Levitical priesthood. So what he's saying is, this encounter shows us that the order of Melchizedek, the order of his priesthood is greater because you have the future priesthood represented in Abraham of Aaron, that, that future priesthood represented in Abraham actually giving tithe to this other line of priesthood in Melchizedek. And you have Melchizedek blessing. So in that picture, what you see is a shadow of something greater. And ultimately, we see the fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. Jesus offers a superior priestly line. He is greater than any priest who has ever been known by the people of God. He is a superior mediator. He is a sure eternal priest. Secondly, in verses 14 to 24 of, of chapter 7, the author goes into great detail to help us to understand that with Melchizedek, something interesting has happened. Um, there's no record really, of Melchizedek's genealogy. We don't know where he comes from, and we also have really no record of his death. It's kind of odd. That's not to say that Melchizedek wasn't a real person, didn't have parents, but it is important that as a type, as a shadow, the Bible presents to us that he had no record of genealogy, and also it, it doesn't record that he ever died. Now think about why this is so significant. It's so significant because the writer of Hebrews is going out of his way to basically tell us, look, every other priest that the Old Testament ever describes, we, we know that he dies. His ministry at some point comes to an end. And what then? But not so with Jesus. With Jesus, what we know is that he is born of God. Yes, he's fully human, but he is fully God. He is the perfect mediator. And as he is installed as a priest, in a similar way to the fact that Melchizedek, it, it never records the end of his priestly service, although we know he probably died, but it's significant the Bible doesn't record it. But it's because that's a shadow of the one who is coming, who will have a priestly service that truly will never, ever come to an end. Which means that 
every day, now, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and into eternity, you can go to Jesus, you can know who he is, you can know what he does, you can know his faithfulness, and you can know that his priestly service, his role as an advocate, intercessor, and mediator in your life will never come to an end. How great, how sure is Jesus as our priest? And then third, we see throughout chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, and also verses 26 to 28, how interesting Melchizedek is because the writer goes out of his way to help us to know that his name is significant. He is the king of Salem. You see that described there, right? We also know that he was made a priest. Well, the first thing that you note here is that never, ever, ever in the Old Testament, in the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, did you see people have the role of both priest and king. That just didn't happen. But Melchizedek, uniquely, unlike the other priests that we've known, is a king and he's also a priest. And again, this is a shadow. It's meant to lead us to the substance of Jesus who comes to not only be our priest, but to be our eternal king. He is wonderful. He is better in every way, and his priesthood is sure. He is compassionate. He is compassionate, but he's also powerful. He is wonderful. And also, he goes out of his way to mention how his name is significant. We know the very name Melchizedek, in the name itself, it means righteousness. The end of his name means he is one of righteousness. But with the place where he ministered, the king of Salem, that means peace, the, the picture of shalom. So what we see is not only with, with, with how he's a king and a priest, but we see in his character. And that's what he talks about there at the end of chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and his own people, and, and then for his people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. He talks about other priests came in weakness, but, but Jesus came in perfection there in verse 28. In other words, what we see is, as Jesus comes, not only is he a king and a priest, but in his character, he is flawless. He is perfect. He is righteous in every way. When you come to him, he, has a, he doesn't have to deal with him, his own issues first. He's just ready to receive you. He has no issues. He doesn't have to first tend to his own business. He's, he's ready. He's free to be about uh, just tending to, to what you're coming for. And he is perfect in every way. And in doing that, he also is able to give peace. He's not only the king of righteousness, but in his righteousness, his very work is meant to bring peace. So in these ways, in chapter 7, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying, understand that Jesus is dependable as a priest. Because when Jesus has come and he's appointed into his priesthood, he's appointed into this order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a better priesthood. In these ways, he's greater, he's lasting, his priesthood is lasting, and it is filled with righteousness and peace. And in these ways, Jesus is dependable. So in our second part of the message this morning, as we go back to look at it, what we see is you're asking the question, are we sure 
Like, how, how sure can we be? I mean, I look at all these other priests and these people, and, you know, maybe I just don't know. Like, maybe Jesus will disappoint me in some way. And the writer of Hebrews is going, no, 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 no. You know, I know that you're evaluating, can you trust him as your priest? But you can. You can. Look how God has appointed him in this new, this different order of Melchizedek. And look at what that means for you. You can trust him. He is better. He's the best. He is eternal. He will always be available for you. He will never tire in his advocacy, his intercession, his mediation on your behalf. And he is filled with righteousness and peace. His priesthood is sure. Now, all of this leads us to a fitting conclusion in the third section today, and that is this. What does this mean for you? This is what I want to close out with today. What does this mean for you? Well, here's what it means. It means that the provisions of Jesus for you are absolutely sure. In other words, they are dependable. If God's promise is sure and his priesthood is sure, then the things that he's provided through his promise and by his priesthood, his provisions for you are absolutely dependable. And go back to our core truth. You can see how I'm reflecting this at the end of the core truth when I say, and I asked you to write down, Jesus alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. Jesus alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation to all who trust him. You remember at the beginning of the message when I said our ability to trust, to fully trust another person, is directly related to your perception of their dependability? I know right now, talking to you today, that your ability to fully release yourself in heart and hope to fully surrender yourself to Jesus is dependent on your perception of whether or not you can really depend on him. I said to you earlier, if we're gonna fully trust Jesus, you gotta know. You gotta know, is he dependable? You have to know it. And what I'm saying to you is, the writer wants you to know he is. He is dependable. And when you know it, here's how it changes your life. There's three main ways. Jesus alone can offer you, number one, eternal refuge. I want you to write these down. Here's how this matters. Here's what it matters. If, if, if you really know that you can depend on Jesus, number one, here's what it means. You can go to him for eternal refuge. Go back to verse 18 of chapter 6. Did you see there where it says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for what? Look what he says. For refuge, I want you to make note of this word. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Some of y'all are thinking refuge and you've got different things in your mind when you think about what is a refuge, a safe place, a strong tower, uh, a place of comfort, a place of protection. But I think it's interesting that he says fled for refuge and I think he's appealing again to the many Jewish background, Old Testament understanding readers that would be hearing this book read in Hebrews. One of the things that I need you to remember in the Old Testament, if you don't know it already, there was actually provisions set up, Joshua 20, for six cities 
to be named as cities of refuge. The long story short was, in the nation of Israel, if you committed a crime and believed you did so unintentionally, like if you took another person's life and it was unintentional, then what would happen is you could, there were, God had appointed six cities that were run by the Levites that you could run to that city. The cities were walled and you could go to the gate and present your case. And if the high priest and the elders there and the high priest presented mercy, believed you to be uh, telling the truth, you could enter the gates. And what happened was you could find refuge in that place. Refuge in that place, as long as the high priest lived, basically you would be protected. You would be protected from revenge of those who you had committed the crime against. In other words, they couldn't take vengeance upon you, couldn't come and kill you too as payback for what you had done. In other words, this was a place of safety. And, and you could do this as long as the high priest lived. So what I think the writer of Hebrews has in mind here is he's going, we who have fled for refuge with our sin, with our brokenness, with all the things that we know that we have done wrong, intentional and unintentional, with, with our, our, our just deep need, and we know justice is deserved or coming if we don't get help. We can flee to Jesus if we really know that God's promise is sure, that his priesthood is sure. We can flee, we can run to Jesus and we can get to his gate and we can present ourselves to him and he as a high priest can let us in. He can take us into those walls of safety and we will have the opportunity for mercy to cover us. A place of, of refuge and mercy. Getting what, not getting what we deserve and even in fact getting more than what we deserve in his grace. We can take refuge in Jesus. Now, the key here is that in the Old Testament, these people could take refuge as long as the high priest lived. But as soon as the high priest died, that refuge was compromised. But how cool is it now that we know that Jesus is never going to die? He lived for our righteousness. He died for our forgiveness. But friends, after three days, he was raised to new life and he lives today. And he has been appointed our, as our eternal mediator he has been taken the office of a high priest and he will never die again, which means the refuge that he offers us is not just temporary, it is eternal. So friends, the first thing that we can do if we really know that Jesus is dependable is we can flee to him in all our sins and our sorrows, we can flee to him and we can receive eternal refuge. I wonder today, do you need to flee to Jesus? Do you need to just flee to Jesus? He is faithful and he is a giver of refuge. Secondly, not only does he provide eternal refuge, but secondly, he provides eternal hope. In verses 19 and 20, if you look at your Bibles, eternal hope. We read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. This is the word that I want you to circle if you don't mind marking your Bible or making note of it in your notes. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The reality is we live in a world right now where we need hope. Most of us are looking for security. We can buy insurance, we can put uh, 
you know, alarms on our houses. We can kind of shore up friendships and alliances. Uh, we can try to determine where we're going to live and what schools our children are going to attend. We can work uh, in our politics to get the right leaders in mind, blah, 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 blah. We can try and try and try and try and try. But the reality is this, this deep assurance that we really need is never going to be given to us by any of these things that we could possibly turn to in the world. We need to have our hope anchored in something beyond the surface and something deeper and something lasting and something real. And the reality is what the Bible describes is that Jesus is an anchor for our souls. What is an anchor? An anchor goes down from a boat and latches onto something that is more permanent than that which is above it. Everything above it is, is kind of, uh, it's not stable. It's, it's a, subs- you know, a storm could come in and the waters could blow, another boat could come by and you get rocked and turned over. But an anchor provides stability because it's rooted in something that's more stable than that which on the surface. And what it, the Bible is teaching us is that Jesus has been provided to us. If you know that he's dependable, if you are sure of God's promise and you're sure of his priesthood, then you need to, you need to realize that your heart has an anchor. And you're in a boat and you're being tossed and turned by circumstance. And is it Biden or is it Trump or is it, is he going to like me or is he not going to like me? Am I going to going to have a job next year, not have a job, my 401k or not 401k, and this and that, and we just get rocked, and the, everything around us is just so unstable. And yet our heart needs hope. Our heart needs stability. We're looking for a place of assurance. And the reality is there's only one place, Jesus and only Jesus, can offer us this kind of security, this kind of assurance. And this is why God has given us his promise. And this is why Jesus has given us his sure priesthood, is that he has come to be our eternal hope. He invites us, put our anchors deep, deep in his character, deep in his promise, deep in his work, deep in his life. Put your anchor in him. He is unchanging and he can give you strong insurance. He is assurance. He is sure. He is firm. He is steadfast. Put your hope in the character and in the work of God. And I'm wondering this morning for you what it would look like to just sink your anchor deeper in Jesus. To just confess that you have been a little bit too rocked and torn by other things and you're still looking for deeper hope. What does it look like to depend even more right now in this season of your life on Jesus. He and only he can give us sure, a sure hope, a strong stability and assurance in life. Put your anchor in him. Third and finally, as we close this morning, as we think about what it means if we really trust Jesus and know him to be dependable, it means we can have refuge. It means we can have eternal hope. And third and finally this morning, it means that we can have eternal salvation. If you look at chapter 7, verses 25 through 28, what we read is this. Consequently, consequently, he is able to, I want you to mark this here, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He goes on and he says, For it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He goes on and says, For the law appoints men in their weakness, 
as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later, later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Consequently then, he is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. Now earlier we talked about how Jesus comes in a different order. He didn't just come for the Jewish people, he came for all people. He, and, you know, he doesn't have to deal with his own sins. He's not beset with weakness. He's perfect. So he's always able to just serve you. And it says here, basically, he saves to the uttermost. In other words, he's saying anybody, anywhere. It, consequently, in light of these things, do you know that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever season you're in, whatever background you have, whatever sins you committed, if you come to Jesus... He can save you. He can not just save you in part, but he can save you in whole. In other words, he's saying, by what he's done for you, the cross is sufficient. What he did in coming is he provides total righteousness in his obedience. And he provides total forgiveness in his death. And he provides the ability to totally make you new in his resurrection from the grave. Jesus, who he is, and in what he's done, his work is sufficient. He can save, and not just save, he can totally save you. I mean, if you and I today found out, let's imagine, you found out, you, got, you get served with a notice, and it says you have $2 million of debt that has to be repaid or else it's going to be bad. And you go, oh my goodness, what in the world? And yet, you find somebody who comes along, Jeff Bezos, actually comes along and he goes, two million, what's that? I got 500 billion, or I don't even know the number. And he goes, I, I, I can not only bail you out of debt, I can bail you out of debt 500 times, okay? This is not a big deal. What Jesus is saying is he comes along and some of us get so weighed down by our sins in our past, the things that we've done. We go, how could, how could I ever be safe from the mess that I am? How could I ever be forgiven? You just don't know how deep my, my struggles are, how deep my sin is, how deep my bondage is. And yet Jesus comes up and he goes, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am and do you know what I've done? Do you know the sufficiency of what I can offer? Yes, your debt is great, but my grace is greater. My righteousness, my abilities, my, my desire and heart for you, my power that raised me from the dead is greater than anything that could hold you from me. There is absolutely nothing, nothing now that could separate you. If you come to Jesus, he is not only able to save you, he's able to save you to the uttermost. Anybody, anywhere, there's no barriers left except that you put your trust in him. Do you believe him? That's the question. Do you believe him? He is dependable, and because he's dependable, friends, here's what we know. He can offer eternal refuge, he can offer eternal hope, and he can offer eternal salvation. So as we close this morning, we go back to our core truth, and I want to go back to just what I said at the beginning. If we're going to fully trust Jesus, you got to know if he's dependable. And the whole point of this whole passage is, yes, he's dependable. You can trust him. God has guaranteed Jesus will live forever as a perfect priest. Jesus alone offers eternal refuge, hope, and salvation for all who trust him.